Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. 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 Praise be to God. And thank you all for joining me here. It's uh, almost the end of the year here in uh, America. It's November 29th, 2015. Praise be to God. We're uh, rolling on in. We're going to about to finish out the year. And I'm thankful that the Lord's moving us through and we're getting through each and every day. I want to thank you all for coming into my home for Gospel Saving Church. And I want to thank everybody coming from online and all over the world, coming from SoundCloud, wherever you come from. Praise God. Welcome. God bless you. And um, thank you for being here. Anyway, um, let's, if you want to join me in a word of prayer, please, I'm going to pray for our service and for me and for you guys. That way the Lord will help us to understand and, and comprehend everything. And, and then we'll start our thoughts from last week's message. So if you want to join me, please, in a word of prayer. Thank you so much, dear God, for all that you do for us, Lord. For you are our great provider, Lord, Jehovah Jireh. Lord, thank you so much for all your great love and all your great provision, Lord, for all those that are yours, Lord, you provide so wonderfully. Lord Jesus, you said, seek ye the kingdom of God and all in all your righteousnesses and all these things, meaning all the things we could need, Lord, all the basic provisions of life, all the, the things that are essential for life, Lord, would be added unto you, Lord. So I see that as your child, Lord. I see that everything you promise is, is mine. And Lord, you, you give me so much, so many blessings every single day. And I'm just so thankful for my family and for this church and for my listeners, Lord. And I'm just thankful for you, Lord. I I just pray that uh, you would help us to understand your word today and help us, Lord, not just to understand your word, Lord, but take action on what we hear today. Lord, may we not be hearers of the word only, Lord, but hearers and then doers, Lord, of this word. Lord, because your word is ultimate truth, the only place where we can find ultimate truth. And I just pray that we would react to it, Lord, and it would just go in our deaf ears and and, and out, Lord, and just not cause us to change, Lord. But I pray that what we hear today would cause us to change. And, and Lord, uh, <clears throat> be active and proactive and for your kingdom and, and uh, for holiness and, and such, Lord. So we just thank you. I ask all these things and I pray all these things in, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you guys want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to cover the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 16. It's only 16 verses, though, so... If you guys want to get there, turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the whole chapter, or 1 through 16. And then I'm going to go on with my thoughts from last week's message. God is not a sexist. So you can be turning there while I'm going through my thoughts. So as I said last week, many women and many people in our current culture today are very offended and disagree with taking the literal translation of 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul says that he commands that a woman not have charge or not have authority over a man. Or you could say that he would say, I would choose that a woman would not be a pastor over a church over men. And as I spoke of last week, this idea is so contested in our age that many churches have a woman pastor as their leader and she leads men. And, And so there's thousands of pastors, women pastors, all over the world as a result. But where does this idea of going against or doing opposite of God's word in 1 Timothy 2.12 really come from or really originate. I mean, you know, that has to start somewhere. I mean, I know how people explain it away, but, you know, everything starts with a thought. Everything starts with, you know, everything comes from your mind. You think something, hey, I'm hungry, so then you think you're hungry, so then you eat. Or I think I'm thirsty, and then you then you get something to drink. Everything comes from a thought. So where does this thought of going against 1 Timothy 2.12 really come from? 
If we look over just a few verses of today's scripture really quick in chapter 3, verse 1, 11, and 12, and I'm going to read them really quick, well, I'm going to show you something else here real quick. So we don't just have one verse here in 1 Timothy 2.12 that speaks about how a woman is not supposed to have authority over a man in church. But then when we go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Then verse 11, Likewise, their wives, speaking of a deacon, must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons, verse 12, be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. Well, there's only one type of person in the world, in in God's world, in in God's idea, that has a wife. And that's a man. So here we see that not only do we have 1 Timothy 1, 2, 12, that tells us that a a woman's not supposed to be over a man in authority, but now we have basically a whole other chapter, 1 Timothy 3, the whole chapter almost, that the context of the whole chapter is about the leaders, about how God wants to run his church, and that men should be the pastors and men should be the deacons over the church. So now, in light of these verses, in, in, in chapter 3, and in light of, in the light of uh, chapter 2, verse 12, we have the context of all these things. It, it's very clear who God wants running and leading his church and who God wants as the authority, the spiritual authority in the family, and that's a man. So, since it's very clear in God's word, yet people are thinking something different, where is the thought coming from? Who are people listening to who are disagreeing with God's word in all these verses? Well, a question for you. Do you think that God would tell you or speak to your mind or speak to your heart and say, hey, so-and-so, John or Joe or Bob or Larry or, or Susie, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go against my word. I don't think so. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is given by his inspiration, God's inspiration, and it's profitable for doctrine, which is teaching or reproof or correction for instruction in righteousness. So no, God's not going to tell you to ever Go against his word, because guess what? He inspired it. He wrote his word. And he's not going to tell you, hey, Bob or Susie or Joan or Larry, go against my word. But there is one being. There's one created being that would love you to do what's opposite of God's word. Do you know who that might be? Bet you guys can guess who that is. Bible calls him the devil. The thief, the evil one, the deceiver. And remember the devil's lie in the Garden of Eden to Eve in Genesis 3, 2 through 4. Look at this lie and tell me if it doesn't sound similar to what we have going on today. Uh, Genesis 3, 2 through 4 says, And the woman said to the serpent, which is, this is the devil, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent, which is the dragon, which is the devil, said to the woman, You will not surely die. And he goes on to say, I know God said this, but that's not true. You can do this. Go ahead and eat it. And then you know what happened? God got really mad. And God had they all live, we all live in the sin of their sin, the very first sin to this very day. Because the devil said, Go against... Do what's opposite of God's word. And that's, you know, God didn't mean that. Well, that's exactly what we have going on today with much of the Bible. 
and especially with 1 Timothy 2.12. The devil's got lots of people believing that we can go against God's word in lots of areas of our lives. I used to know this guy at work, and we talked a long time ago, and I said, we were, he was telling me he was a Christian. I said, oh, well, where do you go to church? Oh, well, I don't have to go to church. God told me I don't have to go to church. Yet his Bible, the Bible says, don't forsake the fellowshipping of one another together. So he thinks God, who wrote the very words, don't miss church, get your butt in church, he thinks the very God that wrote those words told him not to go to church. Oh no, it's the devil. The devil are who most people are listening to. The, the idea of women leading men in the church and in relationships, in, in relationships is a lie of the devil to put God's order out of order. And those that believe that women are allowed to be pastors are really following the devil's lie, just like Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Sad, really. So today, I want you to know this is my close from last week's message. So, ladies and gentlemen, please listen to me. God has a way that he wants things done. And he gives us direction in his inspired word that he wrote. He inspired it through men. He wrote it through the hand of man. And we must obey his written word and not the things that we may think the way they should be. Oh, I, oh, I think this is a better way to do things. No, you don't have that right to think over God. This is a better way to do things because you know what? He's eternal. His word's forever. He, he's never ending. What he wrote is still good. It was good then and it's good today. And the number one way, really the Bible says it's good to hear from God, is not by a little whisper in your ear. Oh, I've got this feeling in my, you know, I've got this feeling inside. Or, oh, I've got this burning in my bosom. No, no, that's not the way to hear God. The Bible says that the best way to hear God is his word. His written word. He says in his word, I hold my word above my very name. He tells David, I believe, the psalmist, or a psalmist. So to God, the number one way we hear him is through his word. Not through a feeling, not through a thought, not through our culture. We hear him through his word. And if any of us thinks a thought of how things should be done opposite of God's word, then we need to rebuke that thought and the devil who will most likely put that thought in your head. Okay? Well, if you think a thought that it's against God, you, didn't, you maybe just didn't even think it yourself. The devil probably said, hey, Joe, hey, Susie, hey, this is, this is it. Just like he did Eve. And then you've got to go, wait a minute, does that line up with God's word? Wait a minute, no, God's word says this. Oh, relevance. No, 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 wait a minute, God is relevant. No, that's, no. hey, I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you, mind. Get out of here. Get, get, get behind me, Satan. I don't want to hear that. That goes against God's word. Because God's word is the ultimate truth of everything. There is no truth that's higher or greater than God's word because God knows everything. And we don't. We're just finite creatures. So today, if you believe this false teaching of women as pastors in God's church, or you believe, oh, I don't have to go to church, or you don't believe anything that God's word says is not true, then you need to repent and start following God's word and be saved from the lies of the devil and stop listening to the devil because he's just lying to you. He just wants you to get off track. He just wants to put your balance not with God's balance. He wants you to get you off God's side and into his side, just like he did Adam and Eve in the very first lie and the very first sin ever in the world. All right, praise God. Let's get on to our new message. Our title of our new message is 
Uh, it's First Timothy 3 again, the whole chapter, 1 through 16. The title is God's Standards for Those Running His Church. Just a simple title. Kind of a title I feel God gave me just to represent exactly what the majority of the chapter has to cover. God's Standards for Those Running His Church. Very simple. I'm going to read over the whole chapter. It's only 16 verses. First Timothy 3, 1 through 16. If you guys want to follow along, that's great. Or you can read along with me. <clears throat> and then I'll teach it. Paul writes on and he says, 3 verse 1, This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if, a man does, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, least being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, least he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, verse 8, likewise deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons found or being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own household well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standard and a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Whew. That's a lot of verses, but you know what? we got a whole chapter to get through. I'm not going to do any idle talk. We're going to get right to it. got a whole chapter to get through. Keep in mind, just as we start, as I mentioned earlier, that this whole chapter, this most of this whole chapter of Scripture is still part of Paul's teaching on church structure. Remember, Paul said there at the very end, Hey, I write this so that you may know how you ought to act in the church of the living God. And again, because God's relevant Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and his word never changes. It's eternal. I believe that not only is this word for the church then, also a word for our church today. Because again, God doesn't change. So, getting on, moving on. In verse 1, Paul just told us that in light of what he said in the last section about the authority of the Christian church, being, you know, the man over the everybody else and let not a woman have charge over a man, he says, this is a faithful saying if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. What is a bishop? And I already alluded to it. If you didn't catch it, a bishop is a pastor. The word for bishop, it, it almost reminds me, it probably is the root word of episcopal, but it's episcopos. And it's defined by uh, Strong's Concordance as oversight. Uh, definitions one and two, overseership, office, charge, the officer or the office of an elder, and the overseer or presiding officers of a Christian church. So in other words, a bishop 
is a fancy word for pastor, because that's what pastors do. Pastors oversee churches, pastors lead churches. This could be one pastor or many. A lot of churches I know of have many pastors. They have several. They have a youth pastor, and they have a uh, you know worship pastor, and they have a lead pastor, and they, <clears throat> they have an assistant pastor, and say, I have many pastors. And what these pastors do is they oversee the church, and they teach the church, and so on and so forth. And Paul just said, <clears throat> excuse me, that if a man desires the bishop or the position of a bishop or pastor, that he desires a good work. But, as the ensuing verses just told us, just because a man may desire the good work of being a pastor in God's church, Paul said that it doesn't necessarily mean that he automatically just gets it. So, just any Joe or any congregant in the church says, oh, I want to be a pastor. Uh, and he comes up to the pulpit, I'm going to be pastor today. No, that's not what Paul said. Paul said, no, no, no. Wait a minute, wait a minute. There are prerequisites. There are requirements that a man needs to fulfill in order to earn the right to be a pastor. A pastor is, number one, somebody that God calls. We'll talk about that a little later. But this here we see here that there are requirements, prerequisites, qualifications, as my Bible puts it in the kind of the heading, where a pastor needs to fulfill these things in order, a person needs to fulfill these things in order to be a pastor. So we're going to read each verse and just go over these things kind of quickly. Some of them are very simple. Some are, you know, kind of more complicated, but look at verse two. Uh, There are 17 requirements here for a man that desires to be a pastor. There's 17 requirements that he must fulfill in order to uh, become a pastor. Paul says, verse 2, right off the bat, he says, a bishop, or say a pastor, then must be blameless, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. That's seven right there. Number one, he says that he's supposed to be blameless. A man that desires to be a pastor must be blameless. What does this mean? The word for blameless there, defined as unrebukable. What does he say? What does unrebukable mean? This means um, uh, somebody that wants to be a pastor has to hold a lifestyle of, you know, basically godliness where somebody, those that are around him, those of his family, those of his church, those of the outside world, would look at his life and say, there's nothing I can find that this man does that's sinful. Like, he's not practicing any sinful ways. There's no, this guy's life is squeaky, squeaky clean. This guy lives, a, a guy that desires to be a pastor needs to be living a life of purity that leaves no room for anyone to come along and rebuke him for practicing any sin. This is the very first prerequisite or requirement for a man that desires a pastor because you know, I mean, he, he's going to lead the church. If this man is leading the church and he's, and he's stuck on stupid and he's in all kinds of sin, the Bible says he's not qualified to be a pastor. He needs to get his act together, get his life right completely so he can lead God's people in holiness. So squeaky clean life. That's first, uh, uh, would you say, a prerequisite or a responsibility that a man that wants to be a pastor has to fulfill. Number two, Pretty self-explanatory. He has to be the husband of one wife. So God says here to men that want to be pastors, hey, you, you can only be married to just one woman. Not, I don't have to go very talk very long on that one. That's very simple. Uh, third, uh, this man who desires the position of a pastor, uh, pastor must be temperate. 
What does that mean? This means uh, temperate. The word temperate means keeping away from wine or alcohol as for use of pleasure. So a pastor, according to God's word, says that if you want to be a pastor, you can't just have casual drinks just because, oh, that's just, I like to drink for casuality. This is a pastor is somebody that want, God wants them. It wants somebody that wants to be one must be clean. They don't have to turn to alcohol. They're not supposed to drink alcohol for pleasure, basically. Now, Paul does tell Timothy in First or Second Timothy that he said, take a little wine for your stomach. Well, wine has medicinal properties. And so Paul didn't tell Timothy, hey, drink wine so that you, know, you can have pleasure, so that you can be relaxed, so that you can be at ease. Because Christ is supposed to be my rock and supposed to give me comfort and supposed to give me ease. He said, take a little wine because you have a stomach problem. You're a little sick in your stomach and the wine will help. So don't, mis- don't mistake that. So number four, a man that desires to be a pastor must be sober-minded. What does this mean? This man that desires the, the position of a pastor must have a sound mind. He must be sane. He must be in his senses. Think about this. He must curb his desires and impulses. He must hold himself in self-control, right? Uh, Keeping his mind clear. Keeping his mind clean of any thoughts that may consume it. Consuming thoughts often get people. I have to watch myself about that. I I start living life and and walking through life and I'll get something stuck in my mind and then all of a sudden I spent all day long being consumed with this thought and I can't shake it. Well, God says here that a man that desires to be a pastor needs to keep his mind clean and clear. And why would he want to do that? Well, a lot of times what my mind wants to get stuck on is sinful things. And if a man's mind is stuck on sinful things, how can he be thinking about the things of God? How can he be hearing God clearly so that he can teach the message on Sunday? How can he be thinking clearly to, you know, hear the needs of his congregants if his mind is not clean and if his mind is not clear and it's not stuck on stupid? Fifth thing, if a man desires to be a pastor, God says here he has to be of good behavior. His actions have to be well arranged, meaning someone who wants to be a pastor is supposed to be able to control his fleshly members and use them, let's say, in a godly way, right? And not get them all stuck in sinful actions or or foolishness. But but a man that desires to be a pastor must be self-controlled. Must you know he's a very temperate person. He's calm. He's you know he's patient. He's he's kind. His actions are godly and not ungodly. Number six, pretty simple here. He has to be hospitable, meaning he has to be generous toward others with his possessions. So somebody needs something, he sees a need, he's right there. He says, "Oh, you know, I'm hospitable here, brother. Here, sister. You know, I need you. To, you need this here." Take this. Pretty simple. Uh, Seventh, he needs to be able to teach. Pretty self-explanatory. Pretty simple. He needs to be able to take God's word and be able to break it down to his congregation or to anybody and be able to teach God's word. Of course, that man has to be filled with the Holy Spirit and able to do this because if he's teaching God's word and he's teaching it according to the Bible, then God's the one that's revealing it to him, so he has to do that. Um, But the list doesn't stop there. (laughs) Paul goes on, verse 3, he keeps going, he says, he needs to not be given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. Let's go over these. The eighth prerequisite or requirement for a man that wants to be a pastor is that he can't be getting drunk on wine. 
So not only is he not supposed to drink wine for casual drinking, oh, I'm just going to have a glass of wine, just, you know, just to, just to drink and just relax. No, but now he cannot get drunk on wine. And that's pretty, that's pretty biblical. I think the Bible commands that even all Christians not get drunk on wine. Ninth thing, uh, a pastor, somebody who wants to be a pastor, is not supposed to be violent. Now, we all get angry sometimes. We all get angry when people do stuff to us that's wrong, right? We get frustrated with people. But here, Paul says that if a man wants to be a pastor, he's not supposed to be violent. He's not supposed to, he's not supposed to be getting physically abusive with others, right? That's uh, to the point of physical contact. Number 10, not supposed to be greedy, Paul says here, meaning an intense, selfish desire to have money. Now, think about it. We all have to have money because that's just the way our world works. We all have to have finances. I mean, that's the way God set it up. That's the way God allowed it to run, I should say, is we have money to buy things we need and so on and so forth. And we all need money. But here we read that somebody that wants to be a pastor is not supposed to be self-consumed with the obtaining of wealth. Uh, If you're consumed with obtaining wealth, that really gets all-consuming. The devil really uses that against you and says, Hey, get all that you need. Oh, get all that you need. And then pretty soon before you know it, if you're consumed with greed and and wanting money, then what's going on? Uh, (laughs) If we are, then we're not going to be focused on God. Again, we're not going to be focused on our congregations. We're not going to be focused on the things that God wants or His commandments. We're going to be consumed with making money. And we cannot be focused on the commandments of God. We cannot be focused on the needs of our congregations. It's probably why the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 13, verse 5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. See? Be content with such things as you have. This is, a, this is a, a, something that God wants for all his children, but especially for a past, somebody that wants to be a pastor or a pastor, they can't be consumed. They need to be content with what God has given them. That's a key to life, really, and a lot for a lot of people, being content just where God has you. And, you know, if you're not content, say, you know, God, do you want me somewhere else? And if not, hey, then keep me where I'm at. And let me be content with where you have me. For the writer finishes off and he says, For he himself said, mean God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's a good promise from God. He'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. Hey, whatever I've got, Lord, hey, I'm happy with it. Praise you, Lord. You've given it to me. I'm just going to be thankful for what you have. And if you want me to have more, well, then, Lord, bring it. And if you don't want me to have more, Lord, then keep it back. Well, then I'm just going to be content with where you have me. But a major thing for a pastor, somebody who wants to be a pastor. 11th and 12th prerequisites for a man who wants to be a pastor, they must be gentle, not quarrelsome. Meaning, God wants a man that wants to be a pastor to have a gentle attitude toward others. Not aggressive, not attacking, not berating people that come up against him. Not quarrelsome, uh, not, not making points to argue with others, right? But having peaceful discussions, peaceful conversations. Peaceful, like, you know, relationships with people. Uh, Paul writes in uh, Romans 12, eight, If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So this is something that God says, Hey, my man that's leading my church, he needs to be peaceable with others. He needs to not quarrel, not always argue. He needs to be gentle with others. 
thirteenth thing that God wants as a prerequisite for men that want to become pastors. Uh, he says, "Don't be covetous. No covetousness. Uh, what is this? It's having a love for money. Well, why would not having a love for money be important for God to want his man that wants to be a pastor not to have? Why would it be important that a, a man that wants to be a pastor or a pastor not have a love for money? Well, think about this. This is the second time now that God has referenced money in a negative sense here toward a man that wants to be a pastor in this same section of Scripture, just within a verse apart. So why would it, not, why would it be important for a man not to love money or then to be covetous toward money? Well, look at these verses. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is like the spirit of things. It's money, it's wealth, it's power, it's possessions, it's you name it. It's all the things of the world. And Jesus said that you can only love one. You can love God or you can love your money and you can love your things. And so he said that you can't serve both. You're going to serve one or the other. And by what I've seen, I've talked about this in previous sermons, what I see from people is they love their money. And a lot of times when it comes to God and money, God loses in people's lives in America, especially in America. Well, again, Paul speaks to Timothy again in 1 Timothy 6.10. We'll read it in, in some time of money. And he says that for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with sorrows. Which means that if a man who wants to be a pastor or any Christian falls into being covetous, they can easily stray from the truth of God because of the love of money and serve the devil again. Because if we're going to love money, we're not going to love God. And God references money here through Paul twice in a negative connotation. And says, hey, I want my pastors, my leaders, to not be consumed with the getting of money. And you, I don't want you to love money. Love me. Think about it. If a pastor of a church loves money, then everybody's going to see that the pastor loves the money which we got a whole bunch of those in America as it is and all over the world. And then what's the congregation going to think? Oh, I can love money too. And then we've got the love of money being the root of all kinds of evils. And many have fallen away from God, basically, is what that verse said. So why would it be important for a person that wants to be a pastor not to love money? Well, it's self-explanatory. You can only love money or love God. You can't love both. And a pastor's a representation. He's God's man at the front of the church, teaching the church, his life is under a microscope. People are looking at it. If the pastor's going to love money, then the congregation's going to love money. And that's what we see. Whole church is built on money. Oh, I'll give you this. Oh, God's great. God, he'll give you this. Give you that. Give you this. Give you that. That's, that's, a lot of churches are built on that. But God's word says here, let a pastor not be covetous. So that way the congregation won't learn that too. So to any pastor or any Christian, keeping money in its proper place is just, is just super important, guys. It's super important. We can only love God or we can only love money. We can't love both. Now, Paul's not done with the prerequisites. He's, he's going on and on and on. Uh, verse 4, he says, uh, a, pa- a man who wants to be a pastor is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. So now we see here that a pastor, somebody that wants to be a pastor, I should say, must not just have all of his personal life in order before God, but he must, 14th thing that God wants from somebody who wants to be a pastor, he must 
have his children in submission with all honor and purity. A pastor is a man that rules his house well. Uh, A pastor is somebody that keeps his children in check. Somebody that wants to be a pastor should have their household ruled over well. Their children, his children should not be just running around the neighborhood causing problems and and causing upheavals and and going to jail and, and, you know, causing people problems. This is something that God says, if you're going to be a pastor of my church, I can't have your children being crazy. I can't have them acting crazy. Why? Why would it be important for a man that wants to be a pastor to keep his house well? Why would that be important? Verse 15 tells us. I'm sorry, verse 5 tells us the 15th thing. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Pretty self-explanatory. If I, as a father, am a pastor or want to be a pastor, if I can't rule over my household well, If I can't keep my children in reverence and honorable in and out of my house, how in the world could I ever step into a leadership role, the leader of a church, and be able to lead that church and teach my congregation and keep my congregation and keep my church in order either? If I can't even do it at home, I'm certainly not going to be able to do it in God's church. At home, my children are younger than me. In my congregation, I maybe have lots of people that are not only younger, but older than me. And if I can't even teach my children and raise them to be honorable and reverent to others, how in the world can I do that with a church, a body of 100 or 200 or whatever amount of people that God has put under my authority at a church? So it's pretty pretty easy. Uh, Pastors are really like a general of God's army. Uh, Each church is like a little out outpost or something like that and the pastor is like the general of that little church and that's like a place where like for refuge and things and so people could come and if the church is running all crazy and everybody's talking all crazy and so on and so forth then the pastor's not doing his job pastor's supposed to keep the church in order same way he keeps his house in order moving on just a couple more look at verse six he says that a pastor should not be a novice why would he say that what does this mean he means that a pastor cannot be a young Christian. Now, we're not talking about this. Does not Like, let's say a man that's 70 years old comes into the church and says, Oh, I got saved. I'm 70. I want to be the pastor. And the, the leaders would say, Well, then, well, okay, sir, following the Bible, they would say, Well, sir, how long have you been saved? Well, I just got saved six months ago. No, sir, just because you're 70... And you've been saved for six months does not qualify you for the position of a pastor in this church. Uh, a man that's been uh, uh, saved a long, you know, a while, five years, 10 years, 15 years, he may be only 20 or 25 years old, but he'd be eligible to be a pastor if he had a desire as long as he wasn't a young Christian in age of, of serving God, of age of knowing God. Um, why? Verse 6 goes on to tell us. Least being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You see, a young Christian, no matter what age, whether he's 70 or 7 or 20 or whatever, a young Christian is not as versed in God's word and doesn't know the tricks of the devil as well as a veteran Christian does. And what would just be just one trick that the devil would have to throw at a young pastor? Let's say a church, you know, gave a 
pastor position, you know, a man of position of a pastor, and he was only 20 years old, and he had only been saved for a couple years. What would be the devil's probably number one trick of deception against that pastor? Just think about it. I could hear the words now. Look, look at your position over even the older Christians of your church. Wow, you know so much about the Bible. and Oh, they put you in charge. Oh, look at how great you are. Oh, you're even in charge of the, of the people that are elderly and the people that are in their 40s and 50s. Oh, and you're only 20 years old. Well, what is that called? What is that called? I, get you, I bet you guys can guess it. That's pride. That's pride. Oh, look at how great I am. Oh, they made me pastor. And, and what does the Bible say about Pride. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So the devil would find a young Christian who would become a pastor easy prey to lure him into pride. And then he would fall. He would be susceptible to a fall just like the devil was in Isaiah 14 with the seven eye wills of Satan. That pastor, that young man that became a pastor could fall into the same condemnation as the devil as Paul just wrote to us here. And lastly, the 17th prerequisite for a man that desires the position of a pastor is verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So meaning, a man that desires to be a pastor, that the people of the world around, his neighbors, his work you know, co-workers, those that he lives around, those that maybe know him on the streets from when he walks around, goes to the gas station. Those people would look at this man that wants to be a pastor and say, wow, that man is a godly, godly man. So this means that a church, when looking for a pastor, and this guy comes up, some guy comes up and says, I want to be pastor, then an interview would have to be made into those that know him. They'd have to go to his workplace. They'd have to go to his home. They'd have to go to his neighbors and say, hey, uh, hey, you know, this uh, John Smith here, he's applying to be a pastor at our church, and we'd like to know, you know, uh, what do you think of this man? And then they would have to say, well, either I don't know a lot about him, or B, oh, man, you know what, that guy, he loves Jesus, and, you know, he holds a godly household, and his house is quiet all the time, and then, boom, okay, he's eligible. Now, we got to look at the other things, but at least now he's eligible. So 17 prerequisite is, is that the man have a good testimony be living a godly life amongst all those of the world, those that are not saved even, lest he fall into a reproach of the snare of the devil. And if a man does not walk as a godly man in the sight of those who are lost, then how could he possibly lead God's church in any godly way? Well, he certainly couldn't. So, those are the prerequisites or requirements of a man that desires a good work of a pastor that he must fulfill in order to be considered for the role of a pastor in a church. And of course, if you think about it, the only one way that a church would know, okay, this man is, is wanting to be a pastor, uh, the only way they'd know if this man was living in these type of godly ways is if they examined his fruit, if they judged his life to see if he was worthy. A lot of Christians get this principle messed up. Oh, you can't judge me. Oh, you can't judge me. Well, yes, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, that we can look at other Christians' fruit if, if, if that same fruit in our lives is pure, then we do have the right to look at other Christians and say, wow, their fruit, or look at that good godly fruit, or whoa, they need, they need to be, you know, they need some, some work and some improvement in that area. And remember, 
The very first prerequisite for a man that wanted that want, wanted to be a pastor was the church supposed to look at his life and say, is he blameless? Is his life a life that is beyond reproach or beyond rebuke? So we can look at his life and not find one area of his life where he needs God to move in his life and sanctify him in this area of his life. So if you ask me, the requirements of a man to be a pastor are not a real easy bill to fill. Okay, In fact, I don't know anyone that really desires in their own selves the role of a pastor. I think, though, more along the lines of, because I sure didn't want to be a pastor, but then with my experiences, I think that God works the same. I think that anybody that wants to be a pastor is someone that God has to call. Because I'll tell you, when you hold these requirements up to yourself and you're a pastor, if you're not living in these things, maybe you're already a pastor, then you're in error. And the Bible says you got to repent because you're not living how God wants you to live. You're not being the leader that God wants you to live and to be. And so anyone that wants to be a pastor or needs to be a pastor that sees these lists of requirements has got to say, wow, well, I think I changed my mind. I don't want to be a pastor anymore. But I think the way God kind of works with pastors anyway and leaders of his church is that he kind of, he calls the people, hey, I want you so-and-so to be a pastor and you and so-and-so to be a pastor. And hey, I want you to do that. And like with me, I'm sure with a lot of pastors, oh, I don't want to do that, God. Oh, there's no way I can do that. Oh, there's no way. But then God has his way to kind of make you feel uncomfortable. Hey, you know, that's what I want you to do. And then he just doesn't leave you alone about it. And then before you know it, God wins because that's how it should be. And then there you are and you're like, well, okay, I got to get everything right. And I got to go through these requirements. And I got to see, have I got all these down pat? I got to work on these things because God, this is what you want me to do for you. All right, anyway. Um, list of requirements hard to follow. Uh, man's got to be called to be a pastor. Uh, that's the role of a pastor. Uh, now, those were the requirements of all for a man desiring the good work of a pastor to fill. But what about the other position of a deacon that Paul talks about here? So, uh, what are the qualifications of a man to become a deacon, and what is a deacon? Now, some or a lot of these requirements for a man to become a deacon are the same as a man to become a pastor. So I'm going to just kind of gloss over them, just give a one-liner over them. But some that are not, I'm going to go through. That way we can finish up our sermon in a timely manner. A deacon, defined by Strong's Concordance, in case you're wondering, is a man who executes the commands of another, especially of a master, a servant, attendant, minister, and is also usually chosen by the pastor or by the church. A man has a calling to be a pastor. A deacon is chosen by the church. That's a bit different. And according to Paul here, there are only seven things that a deacon is required or that a deacon has prerequisites to being a deacon versus 17 of a pastor. So a deacon is a man who directly reports. You can think about it like this. A deacon is a man who directly reports to the pastor to help him with the, the leading of the church, to fulfill his demands, and also for the helping of the congregation, the serving of the congregation, the serving of the church. But the pastor would be the leader. The deacon would be kind of like his, hey, hey, man, I need you to go do this. Hey, Joe, I need this done. Hey, Bob, I need this done. And so the, the deacons would then fulfill the wishes of the pastor and then go do that. Here there are seven things that a church or pastor is looking for in a person that they want to become a deacon. Um, I'm going to talk a little on each, and but I'm going to gloss over the ones that are the same as the pastor. Now, deacons must be an extension, if you think about it, of the extremely disciplined and reverent or honorable pastor. 
and have the values of Jesus Christ, of course. So his first prerequisites found in verse 8, likewise, he says, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. You hear a lot of those, they're kind of the same. Reverent, just meaning um, honorable, similar as a pastor. Remember when I said pastor's supposed to be blameless? says a little later, a deacon's supposed to be blameless. But here we see the first prerequisite is, is he should be reverent, just honorable, an honorable man. A man that's not a, you know, a sleazeball, a man that's honorable, he's respectable amongst the congregation. This is the, what a church is looking for in a deacon. He says, number two, a deacon shouldn't be double-tongued, meaning he's not supposed to be saying one thing to one person and another to another with the intent to deceive. That's important. This man is supposed to be an extension of the pastor, kind of a servant to the pastor. Kind of still the church is looking at a deacon and saying, whoa, that deacon, that's a godly man. Well, if a deacon's backbiting and talking about you and talking to another person and deceiving people, that's not an extension of God. A deacon, like a pastor, not to be given to much wine. They're not supposed to be drunk on wine. They're not supposed to be greedy for money, same as a pastor. They shouldn't have an intense, selfish desire to have money. So not being consumed with getting money, same as the pastor, and for the same reasons. But verse 9, we read that they're supposed to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now, that's a little different. We didn't hear from that from a pastor, but we do hear from it for a deacon. What does this mean? It means keeping faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice for mankind, which is God's great mystery foretold of by the prophets. That's what God says that the great mystery is. It's God, and we kind of we see it at the very end of the chapter, and I'll go through it just a little bit quickly. But the great mystery of the faith is God came in the form of man, died for the sins of the world, and then was resurrected, and then, you know, paid for our sins. That's the great mystery, and that he should hold this great mystery of the faith with a pure inner fortitude with his conscience. That means that his conscience doesn't waver. His faith is as strong as a bull. His faith in this, what God has done for him, is just a sure foundation of his life. He doesn't waver from this. He's stuck on this. He doesn't doubt it. He's solid as a rock. And why? Well, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if a deacon is not faithful and he, and he doubts what Christ did for him, then how faithful is he really going to be to the church? So a deacon to hold the mystery of the faith of Christ with a pure conscience. And as I said earlier, for a pastor, about the man who desires to be a pastor, how does the church really know that the candidate for the position of a deacon is right on? Look at verse 10. But let, uh, but let these also first be tested. Which means that the pastor, the church, is supposed to pick a guy and then test him to see if he really holds true to these requirements that Paul is laying down here. He says, let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So in the areas of we're mentioning here, this deacon, this man that's under the pastor's charge, is supposed to be found blameless, fulfilling all that God wants him to do, being a solid man of faith, doing all the things we talked about, not loving money, <clears throat> being a reverent, being a, being a, a very uh, honorable person, and so on and so forth. And you have to look at him and test his fruit and test him to see if he is going to fulfill these requirements. Kind of some strict and difficult requirements even for a deacon. And <clears throat> just as a man wanted to be a pastor, and they had to have his life together and his household together, so much 
a deacon also have his household together. Look at verse 11, starting with his wife. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. So in a nutshell, a deacon must make sure his wife is also a godly woman, that his wife is also being honorable, that she's also not backbiting or talking about others behind their backs, and that she is a faithful Christ follower herself. You see, if a deacon doesn't have a godly wife who's really following Christ in a holy way, then the others in the congregation are going to see this. And this man is the pastor's extension here. This man is someone that, you know, the pastor is right under the pastor, and this pastor tells him to go do things. If the congregation sees that this man's wife is not even a godly woman, then they're going to think, wow, you know what? We don't have to follow that godliness either, and we can let our wives run crazy too. But no, a deacon as a pastor must make sure that their households are ruled over well. That means that the man has to be the great spiritual leader of his home, taking charge of his home, leading and guiding and directing his family in the ways of God. Uh, A man that's directing his family and promoting godliness within his family and training his wife and training his children in the ways of God on a daily basis and on a regular basis. And just as a pastor, a deacon must, verse 12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, so same as a pastor, ruling their children well and their houses well as well too, same as a pastor. So you see a lot of the same things. And Paul tells us lastly of a deacon, verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, so this is somebody that they've chosen, he's a deacon, he's serving the pastor, serving the congregation, what did he do? He obtained for himself a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Hey, a man that's a deacon, he's a, you know, God looks at this and he's going, wow, that's awesome. He is serving me. He's serving my man that I got in charge. He's obtaining a good testimony. He's become a solid witness for me. I'm well pleased with this man. All right? So now, why did Paul tell Timothy again all this information? We covered it already. Why did he tell him about the men that were supposed to be in charge? Why did he tell us how the men's lives were supposed to be? How, why did he teach us you know, what type of a man God wants as a pastor, what kind of godly lives that we're supposed to lead, verses 14 and 15. I hate to keep preaching this, but we just, as we go on, I teach verse by verse. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that he wrote these things so that he he wants to be there to tell them this in person. And, And you know what? I'm thankful that Paul did have a doubt that he would not be there in person. Because if Paul already knew, hey, I'm going to be there for sure, he wouldn't have ever wrote down this, and we would never have had these staples to follow in God's church as a, a way of truth, as a way of structure for the truth. But he says in verse 15, But if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. So that's church structure, just like I covered last week. And as have I... And as I have implied in my sermon for last week and today, I do absolutely believe that all these things that Paul wrote to Timothy were not just for God's churches back then, but for us today as well. For God hasn't changed, as I said earlier, God's word is eternal. Now, really quickly, Paul closes this section of scripture with two different awesome pieces of information. Look at the very end of 15. He says this. He says, I write these things to you so that you may know how to act in the church of God, which is the church of the living God. Listen to what he says about the church now. This is what the church is supposed to be. 
the pillar and ground of the truth. God's church is supposed to be where God's truths are taught. The very pillar, what is a pillar? A pillar is something that sticks up that everybody can see. It's a pillar. God's church is supposed to be a pillar, something everybody can see. Why? For the truth and a ground for the truth, holding God's truth. And what's the biggest truth that a Christian church needs to hold on to? I mentioned it earlier. It's right here in verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God in Christ, you could say, this is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. God became man and dwelt among us. God manifested in the flesh. Great mystery of godliness. This is the main truth that all of God's churches need to be standing on. He was justified in the spirit. That means he was he he went to he died. Right? He died. Then he rose again, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then what? Received up in glory. That he resurrected, that he went up to heaven so that he could make intercession for us and sit at the right hand of God. This is the two awesome things that Paul closes with. This probably one of the reasons why God wants such strong Christian men to lead his church is because they must hold on to these truths without wavering and stand in them and preach them powerfully. These things are not debatable things. God became man and dwelt among us. He lived, he died, he was seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, and he rose again, and he now sits at the right hand of God. So he's no longer dead, but he's alive once more, and he's a, a God that's not dead, but alive. That's the best news there is. That, that's salvation. That's the doctrine of salvation. That's what God did for mankind. And this is the main truth that all churches are supposed to be standing on and preaching Powerfully. So, the requirements for men to become pastors and deacons take some pretty intense disciplines, if you ask me. I mean, a man that wants to become a pastor or deacon, he, he shouldn't look at it as a light thing. He should look at it, well, okay, you know, do I line up? Does my life line up with these things that God said that I need to be doing? It's definitely, these positions are definitely not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. But when you put them together... This is really neat. God gave me a nice little way to put this here, a nice little simple way to put all that we just read. When you put them all together, what God spoke through Paul here about what type of a man or men should be seeking to lead his church and what men that God is seeking to lead his church, we see this. God is seeking spiritually and morally strong men who don't compromise their faith, that are mentally disciplined in staying pure and sober in their thinking and in their own personal walk with God. But that's not all. But then men also that not only have their lives strong spiritually, physically, mentally, but men that rule over their homes well, training and disciplining their children in the ways of God and being the spiritual leader of their homes, keeping their wives and children honorable in and out of their homes, helping them stay focused on and, and, and believing and preaching the mystery of God, which is Christ manifested and then crucified. And I will go a step further than Paul wrote today because he writes about it other places. 
And I will say this, that men shouldn't just be looking to have these prerequisites or these requirements before they become to be a pastor. I would say that a man needs to continue with these requirements and these prerequisites even after he's become a pastor. Why? Well, what am I saying here? I'm saying that a man can't just become a pastor or a deacon and then say, oh, well, you know, now that I got the position, I'm all good. I don't have to follow these list of guidelines anymore. Uh, you know what? I, I did that to get in, and now that I'm in, I can sit back and, you know, just do whatever I want. That is not what God is looking for. Paul talks about becoming disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, least when I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified. So Paul saw the need to not only follow these qualifications and these guidelines for you and your family if you want to become a pastor or a deacon, but he also said it's important that you stay following these guidelines, these set of rules that I'm laying down here, even after you become a pastor. And Paul even held himself up to that as well for himself. And when we go this next step of men staying qualified to be a pastor or deacon, I can sadly say that today, in our American Christianity, 2015, almost 2016, that if we were to hold today's pastors, or today's so-called Christian churches, up to the guidelines that Paul gave Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, you would find a majority of them should be disqualified and unworthy of the positions that they are in at their churches. The biggest three problems in all churches that pastors and deacons should be disqualified for, number one, they should be disqualified because of their love of money. Because nowadays, if you go to a church, all you hear them talk about often is how you need to be giving and their money. And yet... Their hundreds of million dollar ministries aren't big enough and they're looking at growing even some more. Well, the Bible just said that a pastor shouldn't be covetous. He should not have a love of money. He shouldn't be consumed with the gathering of money. And yet, that's all we see practically in the church in America, especially, and there's other churches abroad, I know, mind you, but I just pick it on America because I'm an American and this is what I see here in my country and I'm calling it just as I see it. But the main reason that pastors would be or should be disqualified in America is because of their love of money. They never get enough. They preach on it all the time like that's really God's command to all the Christians. Make sure you give me all your money. Make sure you tithe today. Make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure. And it's a terrible, terrible, terrible issue in our church in America today. And many pastors should be disqualified because of this very fact of their love of money. Next huge problem that I see in, in most churches is pastors would be, would be or should be disqualified on their sexual sin. There are so many churches, and I've heard about them firsthand. I've seen it happen. I've heard about them from people that have been there. Pastors and deacons and the leaders get caught up with adultery and with sleeping with the congregation, with having sexual uh, you know, encounters with their congregants, and all kinds of this happening in America today. All kinds of sexual sin in the American church coming from the pulpit, coming from the leadership of the church. And for this, 
ladies and gentlemen, the pastors, the leaders of the church should be disqualified because we should have to keep hold of these guidelines that Paul gave us here even after we become the position that we desired in the first place. And the third major problem in today's churches and all over the world, this one sure is, is that a pastor or deacon should be disqualified for them letting their families and their wives go against 2 Timothy 2.12 where they let their wives be pastors over the church. Paul said, I do not allow this to happen. And most churches, a lot of churches, a huge amount of churches, allow women to be their pastors. And their women are even pastors over the church where their husbands are there. This is disqualification, ladies and gentlemen. Paul says, I beat my flesh into submission. At least I'd be disqualified because I'm not following these rules, these regulations, these standards, these requirements that God's given us here for men to be pastors and men to be deacons. So, Christians out there that are listening to me, I implore you today, with my clothes, my clothes, my clothes, by the living God of heaven and earth, that you take a good long look at this list of these qualifications and requirements that God demands that a pastor slash deacon hold themselves to And I pray that you look at your pastors and look at your deacons and you judge their lives, because the Bible says that we can, and you judge the lives of them in your church to see if they're holding fast to this part of God's Word. For this is the structure, the very foundation of the church is its leadership, and that your leadership is holding to this part of God's Word. And if they're not, I pray that you stand up and call it, it, call it what it is, which is sin. I really pray you do, like I did today, from the Word of God, and see to it that they are either removed or they repent, and that if they won't, and you can't get your church to rally behind you, that you yourself go and look for a church and seek God's face and find out where God would have you to go so that you could go to a good, godly church that does follow these requirements or these prerequisites for a man to become a pastor or a deacon and that you would go there and serve God there and love him there praise God that we have his word and that I am we are gospel saving church is his church and if you examine my life or you examine this church it will be found holy according to these charges that God gave here to Paul and then I thank God that we have his word that we have his word for truth and a standard that we we look at it And we have it for light, and that today it is as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago is when it was written. So Christians, don't compromise. Stand for these godly truths in our very wicked age, and let's get our churches and pastors back on the Bible, shall we? So we can become a church that's ready for when Christ Jesus returns, whenever that may be. Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Thank you so much, Lord God. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you gave us so much church structure. Lord God, that you laid down for us as your children the exact ways that you wanted things done. And Lord, it's so simple that we have all these simple things right there. And yet it's so sad, Lord God, that we have so many churches that are going against what you said here. I just pray today, Lord God, that whoever listens to this message, Lord, would take these would take not my word for it lord but take 1 Timothy chapter 3 
And they would go and they'd write these things down and they'd go back to their church and they'd examine their leaders and their pastors to find out if their pastors and leaders are really following these set of guidelines, Lord. If, if we're really following even 2 Timothy 2.12 and even uh, or 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, if we're following these things. And Lord, if, if their churches are not, Lord, I pray that you'd bring repentance to their churches. Lord, I pray that you'd bring their churches back to teaching your word, Lord God. Not only holding to the mystery of godliness, which is you crucified in the flesh. You came amongst us and lived among us as a man and lived, died, and rose again. Lord, but that we'd also hold fast to the ways in which you said that we ought to be living and how we should be serving you. Please, dear God, bring your church back in America. Bring repentance to your church in America. Please, God. And save those people in them that don't know you, Lord, and get the people that are running them back on track. Please, dear God. And I prayed all these things, and I ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.